Dress, the History of Fashion, is a production of Dress Media. people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary and April Callahan. Dress listeners, welcome back to part two of our two-part episode on the life and work of Gilbert Adrian. Um, In part one, we examined his early years as a ravenously curious student, how he managed to become a highly sought-after costume designer for stage and screen at the tender age of 19, Cass. And we also discussed his reign as the head costume designer of MGM from the years 1928 to 1941. And there he was responsible for creating some of the oat Hollywood glamour for the biggest stars of the day, including Rudolph Valentino, Greta Garbo, Joan Crawford, and so, so, so many more. And during his tenure at MGM, Adrian designed the costumes of some 220 films, including many which are deemed classics of Hollywood's golden age. And of course, that includes the original 1939 version of The Wizard of Oz. I mean, this might not conjure the word fashion per se (laughs) and glamour, when you think of it, but certainly it is a Hollywood classic with iconic costume design. And in part one of this yes. series, we ended our discussion with a bit of fascinating history behind, you know, those iconic ruby slippers that were created for the main character of Dorothy and how the childhood nostalgia associated with them have really led them to their multi-million dollar valuation, a permanent home in the Smithsonian National Museum of American History, and also one very curious museum heist. So tune into part one if you haven't already for more on that. It's so fascinating. Yeah, I mean, Cass Gilbert Adrian, who professionally simply went by Adrian, was one of the main figures behind the scenes who created that look that we now associate with classic Hollywood glamour of the 1930s. He was a celebrity in his own right, and his designs were credited on screen as early as 1929, and the movie studios widely promoted his involvement in soon-to-be-released films. They knew very well that his, quote, Gowns by Adrian credit line drew fashion lovers to the box office in droves. And they still do, let's be honest. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And not only were his designs integral in selling tickets to the films he costumed April, as we discussed last week, his on-screen creations were highly influential on fashion trends of the era. More than a few Parisian haute couturiers admitted to being influenced by the unique brand of chic seen on the silver screen, which in many ways was ahead of its time. And it also must be acknowledged that the Hollywood look of the 1930s was very much exaggerated to read on screen. And in that way, it really set itself apart from what was happening in the world of French fashion. Today, however, we are going to be turning our attention away a bit from the bright lights, the glitz, and the glam of the Hollywood movie industry to examine Adrian the Man a little more closely, and also the launch of his highly anticipated fashion brand, Adrian Originals. But uh, Cass, before we do that, we have to talk about a rather momentous event in Adrian's life that occurred in 1939, and that was his marriage to Hollywood actress Janet Gaynor, which was apparently some eight years in the making. (laughs) As all great love stories are. Uh, So yes, the two had actually met in 1931, when Janet was one of the biggest stars on contract, not to MGM, but Fox Film Corporation, one of MGM's main competitors. Janet was actually the winner of the very first Academy Award for Best Actress in 1928, and therefore in a bit of a powerful position at Fox. After an illness, she had a disturbing incident with Fox's costume designer for her upcoming picture, which was called Daddy Longlegs. So she had become justifiably upset when said costume designer told her that her illness had ruined her body and they would not be able to design costumes for her. This is completely (laughs) insane. 
Yeah. And it also, it also yeah. makes me think of, and I think we've talked about on this show, how Chanel and her brief stint designing costumes similarly mm-hmm. said something to Gloria Swanson about her being too fat for her costumes. And it turns out she was pregnant. Mm-hmm. I digress, but apparently mm-hmm. this thing was more yes. common than we realized. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, I, and I'm sure that there's someone out there who works on Hollywood film history who's looked into this a little bit more. Um, there is a lot more to say here about this sort of abysmal treatment of women in Hollywood, which was systemic then and, as we know, continues to this day. Uh, but if we veer off into this territory, we could be here forever and a day. And this is actually Adrian's story today. But um, just how Janet figures into his life um, is after this incident with the Fox costume design department, she actually went straight to Louis B. Mayer, who was the head of MGM. So she kind of like skipped over her bosses and just went to the MGM bosses (laughs) and asked if they might consider loaning Adrian out to Fox to design the costumes for her next film. And, you know, this wasn't in entirely an unheard of arrangement at the time a lot of times the studios would loan out their contract players or their contract employees to other studios for short periods of time so needless to say mgm said yes and while janet and adrian met on several occasions during this process the romantic sparks did not initially fly janet actually found him impersonal and adrian found her quote a bit nervous and eager (laughs) it was so (laughs) was not love at first sight let's just say that no Uh, but it was not until another chance meeting at a party held by a mutual friend many years later that the two met again and adrian wrote in his unpublished memoirs quote years passed and in 1938 i was still at metro i was invited to a dinner party at this party i again met janet and we sat in a corner and talked for a long time that little arrow which people talk about must have hit me that night i could not get her out of my mind after that Yeah, and it's really cute because he actually writes about it a lot more. He talks about how he couldn't concentrate while he was at work because he kept thinking about her. Um, I think he was a little bit lovesick initially. Um, But apparently that feeling was mutual because in August of 1939, the two wed, and in July of 1940, their only child, Robin Gaynor Adrian, was born. And by all accounts, the young couple were kind of in domestic bliss in their Toluca Lake home, which was called Villa Encanto. They lived there with their young son, of course, and also, quote, monkeys, pet starlings, and eight goats. <laughs> um, and according to the New York Times, Adrian uh, very much enjoyed milking the goats as a form of relaxation. Um, and, and this is really interesting because I just want to stress here that we know that even from his earliest days in Hollywood, before he married and met Janet, Adrian loved to entertain. So all of these various homes that he lived in over the years were kind of like his own personal oases and he loved to throw lavish parties for the who's who of hollywood many of whom were his closest friends and adrian and Gaynor lived in several spectacular abodes over the years which were decorated by none other than adrian himself of course mm-hmm. <laughs> so the residences in california and new york were frequently the subject of interior design articles Perhaps a lesser known aspect of Adrian's professional career is that at the same time of his tenure as the head costume designer for MGM, he also had his own interior design business. Where did he find the time? That's what I want. I don't know because it, <laughs> it gets even it gets even more. Yeah. <laughs> because, yeah, There's because more. He also had a separate antique shop, which was located in Los Angeles on Alvera Street, which did quite well. And as we established in part one of this episode, April, Adrian's energy and creativity knew no bounds, and he liked to direct it into multiple directions at once, as exhibited here. Yeah, and this is the reason why most likely Janet encouraged him um, when he decided that he had a new business venture in mind, Adrian Limited, a.k.a. Adrian Originals in 1941. And maybe I should say this newest business venture wasn't exactly a novel idea and Adrian design fashion line had been an idea actually that had been floating around for years even by MGM and this kind of started after the fashion trend that Adrian's Letty Linton dress sparked in 1932 so MGM had been kind of exploring different ideas and concepts on how to capitalize on Adrian's talent to create mass-produced ready-to-wear for the American market. And in 1933, MGM and Adrian entered into what were kind of 
fairly substantial negotiations with a New York-based 7th Avenue manufacturer slash wholesaler. Um, That company was called MJ Kane Lloyd Wheel. And the goal was to launch an Adrian design line of ready-to-wear. And really for complicated reasons that were we don't need to get into here today. Uh, eventually, MGM backed out of the deal, kind of when it was kind of far along, um, and mainly because the studio realized that it was going to take too much of Adrian's time and attention away from his work at the studio. But this idea did remain in the back of Adrian's head for years, and it was a rather big creative difference with Louis B. Mayer that brought it to fruition. So for 12 years, Adrian had been responsible for costuming one of the world's biggest stars, Greta Garbo for the silver screen and in the process was really largely responsible for crafting her image as a fashion icon. Those of you who are Garbo fans, dress listeners might already know this to some, this also might be a surprise (laughs) because this, the star was rather reclusive and she was notoriously unfashionable when left to her own devices. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Slovenly by some descriptions, including Adrian, who wrote about her showing up for fittings with unwashed hair, wearing stained clothes and sneakers. He says she was oftentimes so unrecognizable in that state that she could go about in public and people didn't even recognize her. And, and, and part of me wonders if that's not the reason why she did it, right? right? Um, if you want to learn more about Garbo, we do talk about her and her relationship with fashion a little bit more in detail in our past episode on Valentina or Valentina Schley, who also harped on the star about her style and Valentina frequently dressed her as they were in a thruple with Valentina's husband for years. <laughs> so, yes. <gasps> case scandal um tune into that episode if you want to learn more about that but um we digress so um getting back to the adrian garbo thing mgm basically cast garbo against type for a lead role for the 1941 film two-faced woman where she was supposed to be playing quote a typical american girl not the sultry screen siren she was known for playing And Adrienne really railed against doing these costumes for Garbo because it's like an everyday girl around the corner kind of kind of look. Um, He was not into it. He made his feelings known. And when he did design the 14 looks for her, apparently they were too avant Adrienne (laughs) for MGM's liking. And uh, the studio ordered them scrapped and requested that looks be pulled from the costume department's stock wardrobe instead. So fascinating. But I mean, Adrian and Garbo are synonymous with Hollywood glamour, right? So he was like, no, thank you. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And this was a straw that broke the camel's back for Hollywood's most sought after designer. He said, quote, when the glamour ends for Garbo, it also ends for me. And in late 1940, he began to put plans in motion to finally launch his own fashion house. He signed a lease on a significant property in February of 1941. And this was actually months before his telegram to Louis B. Mayer in August of that year, wherein he officially tendered his resignation three weeks from that date that he sent that telegram. And this was a massive blow to the studio. Adrian and Janet's son, Robin, has been quoted in Howard Guttner's 2001 book on Adrian as saying, quote, my mother always told me that when my father left Metro MGM, the studio had to hire five different designers to replace him. Yes, this pretty much makes sense in terms of what we know, Cass, about his superhuman power to uh, create new work. So now all of that energy was to have a new focus, Adrian Limited, which was the kind of like business organization name. Um, The brand itself on labels was Adrian Originals, just to be clear about that. Sometimes we use them interchangeably. Um, But this was to be his own new fashion house. And Gaynor offered to bankroll the business. And I do want to talk about this in terms of money for a second here, because I think this is really interesting. At the time of Adrian's departure from MGM, his salary was $1,000 a week in, in money of that era, which adjusted for inflation today would over be like a million dollars a year in total adjusted for inflation. So he was doing more than okay. <laughs> and I guess... This just kind of begs the question, how much had Gaynor been making when she was at Fox if she was the one that, if she was Daddy Warbucks, basically? Um, You know, I don't know. I didn't have time to investigate this further, but maybe one of our listeners out there who's super into Hollywood history knows the answer and will let us know. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, starting a fashion house from scratch comes with a hefty price tag. I mean, there's a ton of overhead and capital needed to get started, yeah. right? And the building chosen to be home to Adrian's new venture was the old Jules Verne restaurant off the prestigious Beverly Drive in Beverly Hills. Substantial renovations were needed to renovate the space to create the quote unquote production that was Adrian Limited. And we use that term production quite purposefully because this was in so many ways similar to a Hollywood production, right? Not a motion picture, of course, but retail production, which was about to make the woman of America its leading lady. And also from an organizational standpoint, some of Adrian's employees from his time at MGM followed him to his new business to become fitters and seamstresses Mm -hmm. at this new company, while other Hollywood associates stepped in to fill the new shoes of company executives. In April, it seems that people really liked working for Adrian, which is nice to hear. Yes. Um, from what I can tell in doing all the research for this, it seems that he was considered to be like a consummate professional while he was at work, um, but also at the same time, not above pulling an occasional prank <laughs> or two. Um, I get the impression that he ran kind of like a tight ship and that he was very organized, but he had a very fair and steady temper and, you know, basically created an overall pleasant work environment and that his colleagues and especially his design team really seemed to have respected him for that. And um, I remember, and I don't know if she told you guys this too, Cass, because we were in grad school in different years, but I vaguely remember our professor, Lourdes Font, um, in grad school when we're talking about Adrian telling us that he went to work at like nine or 10 every day and then left promptly at like four. And, and that was that he was very clear about setting boundaries around the amount of time that he was willing to give to the studio. I mean, you know, he had other businesses to run and goats to milk. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. The very important goat milking and other tasks like (laughs) setting out to work out the design of what has to be surely one of the most sumptuous retail spaces that American fashion has ever seen. So before we get to the close, can we just talk, April, about the setting for Adrian's designs for the public? I mean, come yes. on. So you had the Adrian Salon on Beverly Drive in Los Angeles. It was so spectacular and special that it was actually widely reported on in the fashion press. It was created mm-hmm. in collaboration with designer Eleanor Lemaire. And when you entered the building, you walked into a 16-foot or 5-meter-high foyer. Quote, the large foyer is entirely circular and completely finished with soft-grade pink from floor-to-ceiling walls and woven cotton carpets, which have been dyed to match. So talk about a grand entrance. Yes. And Adrian was now 39. And at this point, he had been working around both Broadway and Hollywood sets for 20 years. So that influence is strikingly evident in how his new fashion house presented itself. There was both a custom salon for creating made-to-measure demi-couture looks for individual clients, and there were also ready-to-wear offerings, which he termed, quote-unquote, immediate wear. Um, And Adrian launched himself into his new role of American fashion's newest darling with his business concept fully intact. And he did this with Panache. You know, his immediate wear salon was also circular, and it was given that same monochromatic pale gray-pink color scheme. The ceilings were also 16 foot, but in the uh, immediate wear salon, the walls were covered all the way to the ceiling in mirrors. And then interspersed around the room were these tall pink columns, which stood away from the wall. And then between the columns, kind of like these huge like swags of pale pink nebby raw silk. Um, And that same uh, pale pink silk was used for the custom furniture in the room. And it was very interesting because it was written a lot about in the fashion press at the time. And uh, one writer remarked that the overall effect of this room was that you were entering a floor floating realm. You might not just post pictures cool. of this because it is a little hard to imagine, yeah. or at least what I'm imagining. I'm like, I want to see. I want to see it. We have okay. pics. I have pics. So Adrian's custom salon had even higher ceilings, 20 foot or six meters. The monochrome color palette was continued, but here it was, quote, a color theme of soft gray greens. Here again, one color had been used throughout. The carpeting is the same and the upholstery is in the raw silk dyed soft green. A charming wall decoration is one of the plaster groups by Tony Duquette. Drapes are ceiling high and woven suede and cape skin leather with metallic thread, all in gray greens and golds. And this is a women's wear daily quote from August of 1942. 
And April, correct me if I'm wrong, but that description of 20 foot long drapes sounds exactly like it might've been the work of Adrian's frequent collaborator, one Dorothy Liebes. Yes. Yes. Uh, well, I haven't found direct evidence of this yet, but I feel like it's pretty safe to operate on this assumption. From our very recent episode on Dorothy Liebes, we already know that she did these sort of large-scale architectural commissions exactly like this, and she did those from her San Francisco studio, where she also delighted in using things like leathers and metallics and these other non-traditional materials in her custom-woven textiles. And we know from her end of the story that she had an established working relationship with Adrian for many years. She was at the top of her game at this point um, for this type of high-end fabric for interiors. So Levis really would have been a natural choice for Adrian. You know, he had long been devoted to using the most sumptuous quality textiles uh, in his own costume designs. And, and he did that for the costumes because he knew that, they, you know, it would ensure the quality of how they read on screen. And Adrian's devotion to quality and to his favorite textile artisans would carry through in this next chapter of his career, Adrian Limited. And when we come back from this short sponsor break, we will delve into his specific creations for his label, Adrian Originals. Cass, as you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm -hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone. With more than 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and so many more, that world out there is practically at the tip of your tongue. And that's right, dress listeners. For more than 30 years, Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning. There are no English translations, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think think in that language, which is incredible, you learn by immersion, and their programs are available to use on your desktop or as an app. And let's not forget that there is an amazing built-in true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation, so you learn the proper accent from the very start. For a limited time, dress listeners, you can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off by visiting rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. Welcome back, dress listeners. We have so much territory to still cover. Yes, (laughs) we pick the biggest topics uh, that could really be their own series, right? But Adrian's so fascinating. He deserves at least two episodes. So here we are. April, we've only just reached the point of our episode where we begin our discussion of the incredible designs Adrian created during the 1940s. And one of the things that really must be emphasized is that Adrian launched his high fashion label fully formed out of the gate both operationally and from a marketing standpoint. And his fame as a Hollywood costume designer was such that he had really been cultivating his customers and creating desires for his clothes for more than a decade. And this wasn't a business that was going to take years to build and brand, right? It needed to be able to live up to the public's fashion fantasy the very moment doors of its Beverly Hills salons opened and the clothes hit the floors of elite department stores across the country. And Cass, one thing that Adrian did that I think was very smart in this venture was that he did not alter his formula for success too much. He very much remained a Hollywood designer, only now tweaking how that hat was worn, you know, going from Hollywood costume designer to Hollywood fashion designer. In the July 22nd, 1937 issue of Women's Wear Daily, Adrian recognized that Hollywood style had its own unique design lexicon, unlike that of Paris or the American fashion capital of New York. He said, quote, France is the most mature. It has learned all of its lessons very well and seems to have a great deal of wisdom, but is not always infallible as to taste. New York is conservative and shrewd and much more of a woman. Hollywood is young, experimental, enthusiastic, and full of the unexpected, continuously so. It is very much like an adolescent person who is very headstrong, but eventually influences his or her parents completely or pulls them over to his way of thinking. Thus, we also find that Paris or New York, even against their wills, are very much aware of this very alive and slightly unmanageable child, which is Hollywood. And it's such a great quote. 
When I found this, I was like, ding, 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 ding. Yeah. And Adrian had been one and- of the defining voices in the evolution of the Hollywood look for well over a decade, right? So why would he switch gears now? He remains steadfast in his commitment to the picturesque in his designs for women's dresses, suits, and evening gowns. He just simply turned down the volume ever so slightly for his designs intended for the public. But drama was really a defining feature of the Adrian look, and not even a world war was going to stand in his way in delivering what his adoring public expected from him. That's right. It's super important here to remind ourselves that Adrian began planning for his fashion house in earnest in 1940 when it had become evident that the U.S. fashion industry was about to be cut off from the Paris couture as a source of inspiration due to World War II. So to Adrian, this must have felt like this was his moment to step into the spotlight that was newly available to American fashion designers. And he remarked on this a few years later in an October 1943 issue of Women's Wear Daily saying, quote, I have constantly felt that many New York fashion editors were trained too long by European contacts and that they have for years overlooked the creative potentialities of their own people. It seems unfortunate to me that has taken a war to make them look in their own backyard. And because of the war, Adrian and other American designers had to get creative. Only a few short months into the debut of his fashion business, the U.S. War Production Board issued General Limitation Order L-85 on April 8th, 1942. And we've talked about this on the show, of course, but this directive dictated the types and amount of fabric and the ways in which it was to be used by American manufacturers of women's wear. It was largely an effort to conserve or ration materials for the war effort, and the L-85 limitations on fabric use resulted in a streamlined silhouette. And this was what Adrian had already been doing for more than a decade, right? So needless to say, Adrian's creativity knew few limits, and he was not daunted by this new challenge of moderation in design. On March 23rd, 1943, Adrian addressed the issue of L85 with Women's Wear Daily, saying, If it becomes necessary to make clothes out of burlap, we will make it chic and interesting. <laughs> end quote. And um, get this, Cass, because I like where this article goes after um, the editor posts an editor's note saying, Mr. Adrian uses the term burlap figuratively, meaning the cheapest sort of material, coarse and loosely woven. He is undoubtedly aware that burlap imported from India is now subject to government priority and as things are not a remote possibility for (laughs) civilian clothes so basically even burlap was rationed at this point (laughs) um so how about it cast did adrian have to resort to using burlap or you know what were the reactions to his initial collections under his own label bible vogue itself remarked in the march 15th shoe quote Adrian understands the role of his off-screen heroine and the clothes to fit that role. They now fit the setting of real life, and they are made to give performances 365 days a year. They represent quiet distinction, wonderful fabric, and excellent workmanship, end quote. In April, we've already mentioned, of course, that Adrian was committed to using the highest quality textiles, and in these initial collections, his garments were made from the fabrics from the New York branch of the elite French firm Bianchini, Ferrier, and Polistout who, like Dorothy Liebes, was another maker of fine artisanal fabrics in America, although she herself was Polish. So no, April, it seems that burlap was not only not an option, it was also not necessary. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, which is good for him, I guess. So while Adrian did initially avoid some of the hardships surrounding textiles in his earliest collections, and this is probably because production on those collections had begun slightly before LA-85 was put in place, um, this doesn't necessarily mean that he didn't run into snags related to the war breaking out entirely. All of that care and lavish work cast that you talked about in his Beverly Hills salon was initially for naught. And that is because following the bombing of Pearl Harbor in December of 1941, the war office, the U.S. war office, commandeered Adrian's not-even-opened salon for their own use. So the first two showings of Adrian's fashion line didn't even take place in his, you know, brand new pale pink and green palace of sartorial pleasures. Um, The very first showing took place at his own home, 
uh, Villa Encanto, and the second one a few months later at a rented space in Beverly Hills before eventually the war office relinquished their occupancy after a few months. But um, it was not until August of 1942 that Adrian's vision became complete with the venture's first fashion show in their new space. So Adrian describes the first fashion show in his unpublished memoirs, quote, the opening night and our new setting was like a movie only we were living. We had spent a fortune on this new venture. Would we succeed? One night would tell us. I had designed six scenes, which were carried out by the designer, Tony Duquette, in his typically personal and spectacular manner. The lighting system with a bank of dimmers for 15 spotlights was keyed to achieve every dramatic effect. The music starts. The first scene had a snowy grandma Moses setting as a sleigh with a cardboard horse galloped across the stage, mannequins modeled top coats. He continues, then there was a Persian garden where models wore exotically styled house coats and evening gowns. When they changed to suits, each girl led a real life lamb on wheels. For the finale, I needed to present a group of organdy evening gowns that were picturesque, romantic, and important to the collection. For a setting, I decided on a hot summer night in New Orleans. I had secured authentic recordings of birds and frogs, and an engineer had mixed these sounds into a single soundtrack. No music on this recording, just bird songs and frog calls, end quote. So after this final presentation, um, this final presentation was apparently lit to, um, to the effect that the models were walking through pale and golden yellow moonlight casts. Apparently it was so striking that buyers got up and clapped for a solid two minutes, which was something of a rarity at this time. And actually, Adrian goes on about this applause, saying the wild applause was followed by enthusiastic purchases. After this, our business was thriving, orders poured in, and more importantly, reorders followed. American women could now get their own Adrian originals in not only the Beverly Hills Salon, but also high-end department stores across the U.S. So that included Bonwit Teller in New York City, Marshall Fields in Chicago, and Neiman Marcus in Dallas. And in 1943, April, it was not only orders pouring in, so also began the awards. And in 1943, Adrian was awarded the Neiman Marcus Award for Distinguished Service in the field of fashion. And two years later, in 1945, he was honored with the most prestigious award possible in the U.S. at the time. And we're, of course, talking about the Cody American Fashion Critics Award. And at this time, in its only third ever presentation, the Cody Award came with first, second, and third place rankings. Adrian came in first place, and Tina Leeser, who you have researched and written on extensively April, came in second. Yes, and we have, of course, already done a past episode on her, so you can tune back into that if you want to learn a little bit more about the American fashion scene in the 1940s. So you might be wondering, what was it that made Adrian's work beat out Leeser's, who was an incredibly influential New York designer at this time. Um, well, according to the Cody Awards, it's because Adrian's work both on and off screen had literally reshaped the fashionable silhouette. In February of 1945, Women's Wear Daily wrote, quote, the impact of his individual designs on movie audiences shaped style trends, some still world accepted creations. The famous Letty Linton sleeves and shoulders for Joan Crawford and the casual polo coat for Greta Garbo started models turning out by the thousands all over the country in all price levels. The Adrian shoulders have become universally adopted in every possible type of garment even the shoulders of children's coats have become Adrianized. <laughs> yeah, definitely one of the key elements of Adrian's signature style was this strong shouldered silhouette, which took the world by storm. And as we mentioned in part one of this episode, Adrian first conceived this look during his time designing at MGM for Joan Crawford. He was naturally broad shouldered. And he said by making the shoulders of her garments even wider, he created this illusion of a smaller waist. And when it came to designing for the masses, he implemented a similar concept. And he told the New York Times in 1945, women who have narrow shoulders look best with narrow hips to go with them. But most women don't have narrow hips. So I brought in their shoulders in proportion. And this enhances the natural kind of American grace for which I strive. 
This tactic was widely used in Adrian's designs of the 1940s for day dresses and evening gowns, but most notably, it was a defining feature of his suits. And when it comes to the subject of American designers known for women's suits, it can be argued that Adrian reigned supreme. Um, if you know what you are looking for, an Adrian suit from this era is potentially an easy tell, I would say. You know, first you would be looking for that kind of sharp shouldered silhouette created by heavy artificial shoulder pads. Another clue might be the application of mitering or the piecing of textiles. And while Adrian was certainly not the only American designer playing with the mitering of textiles in a particular stripes, this is also something that designer Elizabeth Hawes did in the 1930s, for example. But um, it, but this mitering and piecing is a common theme in Adrian's work throughout the 1940s. This and in case you're not a sewist and not familiar with the technique that April's referring to, it's basically when you take a single stripe textile and cut the pattern pieces in a way that when you sew them back together, you're reorienting the stripes in different directions. So basically it's a way to create visual interest and movement in a garment using only one type of fabric. And under the L85 restrictions of the 1940s, this was a win for moderation, right? And also Adrian applied the same idea to his solid suits as well oftentimes using piecing as purely a decorative element. So again, using the same fabric or tones of the same fabric, potentially pieces could be cut in the shapes of chevrons, squares, or an asymmetrical line. So that when sewn back together, it's simply the quirky seam line the eye travels to. No other embellishment needed, right? Like beading or embroidery. Yeah, and Adrian's love of piecing took center stage at the Cody Awards Ceremony in 1945 when he won because in addition to the awards ceremony and reception, there was also a fashion show and 32 examples of his modern museum collection were shown. Several of these garments are actually now in the collection at the Costume Institute at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, who, who I must say has a staggering amount of Adrian's. I'm not exactly sure why, but but we could look into that at a later date, perhaps. But I want to read a, a catalog note from, for one of them. Uh, one of the pieces, the catalog note from this collection says, quote, with a palette inspired by cubism, Adrian extended the abstractions of his earlier designs of the 1940s. Harper's Bazaar described this series as intricate as a puzzle and modern as a Picasso, end quote. Exploiting the dynamism of the futurists and the geometric minimalism of the constructivists, the interconnecting cell-like shapes reflect in an abstract biomorphism. Adrian, however, eschewed the utopianism of the futurist and constructivist movements with a design philosophy that was firmly grounded in the realities of American life. And that is the Cossum Institute's description of the Adrian's Modern Museum collection. <laughs> How so, you might ask, right? So by making the whole thing surprisingly practical. To create the look of effect of the art movements referenced, Adrian was simply cutting amoeba-like shapes out of different colors of fabric and piecing them back together. And it's almost hard to tell from far away, is this a print or not, right? You really got to get up close sometimes. And the overall feeling evoked is that one is wearing a modernist painting. It's very chic. It's yes. So and cool. let's face it, dress listeners, this is also a major pattern cutting and pattern making flex. This was not necessarily easy to do. It wasn't even necessary. You know, it, it takes so much precision and skill to do what, what he was doing. And this is one of the reasons why Adrian's designs were so highly sought after. They really spoke for themselves without trying too hard. And as Adrian remarked in that same 1945 article in the New York Times, which we referenced earlier, he went on to say, quote, the greatest fashion weakness of the American woman is to over-accessorize. When she dramatizes herself without becoming a major production, she is unbeatable. And let's face it, an Adrian customer was almost certainly not going to be the wallflower in the room, right? You're going to notice her. And women flocked to his designs precisely because they wanted to stand out. And I think he was alluding to the fact that he counts on the fact that his clothes provide sufficient drama. So there's no need for the wearer to add anything additional, right? His designs really speak for themselves. And this certainly applies to another one of Adrian's signatures, and that is his use of prints. And when it came to his selections of prints, dress listeners, the man was not he afraid was not. to go there. <laughs> there are so many insanely wonderful examples. 
And April, I thought that maybe we could both pick a couple of our favorites. So April, would you like to go first? Sure, sure. My first pick is because I did a tiny bit of work around this textile when I was in grad school. So I would like to talk about Adrian's 1947 dress in which he uses a textile motif uh, designed by Salvador Dali. Mm-hmm. And this is also, this dress is also in the collection of the Costume Institute at the Met. Um, and that catalog record for this particular dress says, quote, this trim evening dress created with a textile designed by the artist Salvador Dali for the firm Wesley Simpson brings to mind Scaparelli's collaborations with the artist a decade earlier. Playing with the effect of the print, Adrian introduced an area of black fabric at the left shoulder shaped like a face and profile, onto which he has appliqued sections of Dali's motif of fractured anthropomorphized rocks. So Dress listeners, in my mind, this dress is the epitome of Adrian. It has those heavy, wide shoulder pads in the dress as a slim skirt that extends to the floor. Um, but this is also an example of his love of prints, piecing, and his repeated references to modern art of the era. Like, you cannot get more Adrian than this dress. <laughs> no, you cannot. It's so stunning. And for my pick, some of our listeners might already be familiar with it if they're Adrian fans, especially. And in actuality, I'm not even sure this qualifies as a print, even though it initially reads that way. So for the sake of not arguing a technicality, we can just include it here regardless. So that would be Adrian's Roan Stallion silk dress of 1945, which is mostly on a black ground, but extending down one side of the short sleeve dinner dress is a motif in white and dark orange of a stallion that's rearing on its hind legs with its, with its front feet in the air, and the head and the torso of the stallion are on one side of the bodice of the dress, and his body and rear legs and tail trail down the same side of this slim skirt. And really what makes this dress so special is that it's, as I said, not a print at all because Adrian has actually hand painted the stallion directly onto the silk. And it has to be one of his most iconic creations. And versions of this dress are held in actually several museum collections, including the Costume Institute, but also the Museum of Fine Arts Boston. Yes, it's it's so gorgeous. And once you see this dress, once you never forget it, it just kind of stays in your mind. Um, so the Roan Stallion dress might be one of his most famous creations, but it is just but one of an entire category of prints that he loved to use, which featured animals. In February of 1943, the Detroit Free Press reported on a print Adrian created in collaboration with the textile Manufacturer, Wesley Simpson, who we had already mentioned, um, they had also worked on that Dali textile. Um, And apparently, Adrian had been at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City and become rather enamored with a painting by the early 19th century English painter John Constable. And this painting had cows in a pasture in the foreground. And a light bulb went off in his head, and Adrian soon reached out to Wesley Simpson, the the firm, and asked if they could collaborate on a textile with him that was inspired by Constable's cows. (laughs) I mean, the list cast here can go on and on and on. Adrian used textiles with prints and motifs created by Ludwig Bemelmans as well. Um, One in particular was called Rabbit Warren. And some of you might know Bemelmans better as the illustrator of the children's book series featuring Madeline. Those of you who live in New York City might know Bemelmans as, of course, the namesake of the Bemelmans bar in the Carlisle where Bemelmans murals um, line the walls. And it's one of my favorite NYC haunts. So um, just lots of interesting connections here. Yeah, very, very cool. And it seems like a Adrian really had an affinity for supporting the work of other artists who translated their designs for the textile trade. And one of Adrian's most famous clients was actually the American socialite and art collector Millicent Rogers, who of course is the heiress to the standard oil fortune. And in her day was inarguably one of the best dressed women in the world. She's on constantly appearing in best dressed lists and in the pages of Vogue, et cetera. But in 1947, she visited Taos, New Mexico to nurse a broken heart after a breakup with Clark Gable. But she ended up falling back in love, not with another person, but with the American Southwest. And Adrian, who had a working and personal relationship with Rogers, also took an interest in this region especially in indigenous art and iconography, which he translated into some of his designs. 
And we know what you're thinking, dress listeners, cultural appropriation, beep, 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 which Rears of course we, had. <laughs> <laughs> we know was a rampant practice at this time and still is. But unlike uh, some other designers who, who pilfered Native American aesthetics for quote unquote inspiration, Adrian used Native American textile designs. Specifically in 1948, he used two textile designs, um, an oversized turtle print and another leaf motif by Tom Two Arrows, the Native American painter who also went by Thomas Dorsey. A member of the Lenni Lenape tribe, Two Arrows was also adopted by the Onondaga. And after after serving in the military in World War II, he went on to become an artist, a performer, an educator who documented and shared his native traditions and culture. And you mentioned the turtle print April. And as we well know at this point, Adrian had an ongoing love of animals. And you might recall from part one of this episode that growing up, Adrian had also always wanted to be an animal painter. His use of textiles featuring animal motifs was really a testament to his lifelong interest and curiosity. And in 1948, so the same year he did the Tom Two Arrows collection, this curiosity led Adrian and Janet on a two-month trip to Africa where Adrian soaked up the imagery. And he later wrote, quote, I have always enjoyed the softest chairs, indulged myself with beauty, and insisted upon perfection as a background. And yet Janet and I have found our happiest moments on the edge of a canyon or in some little room hung with mosquito nets, not with chintzes and taffetas. We have found a place of beauty on an iron bed in the Congo or sleep interrupted by the foghorn cries of hippopotami. And it's almost a foregone conclusion here, friends, that Adrian's African travels would find their way into his work back in L.A. In 1949, his collection that was presented in August of that year was full of animal prints. But these were unlike the pictorial motifs featuring animals that we had heretofore seen in his work. This was a new moment for Adrian. His animal motifs now became more fundamental and kind of closer to nature itself, as is noted in collector Leonard Stanley, Mark Vieria's 2019 book on Adrian, um, which says, quote, pale gold lame was woven with cobra markings, taffeta printed with leopard spots, and a gold lame fabric patterned with tiger stripes, end quote. So, you know, a really spectacular example of this collection is um, in the form of an evening ensemble. From Janet's own wardrobe, and this is in the collection at the Costume Institute, she donated it um, to the Brooklyn Museum, and then in turn, that collection was donated to the Costume Institute. But it's a two-piece ensemble with an evening gown and also kind of a short, cropped, long sleeve jacket. It's made from a tiger-striped silk that came from Bianchini Ferrier. And to say that this ensemble is fierce is an understatement. Yeah, and Adrian's trip to Africa also resulted in some other creative endeavors. He had never given up his childhood love of painting animals. And in 1959, an exhibition of his paintings inspired by his trip to Africa was held at M. Nolder and Company in NYC. This is an art gallery with an extremely long and sometimes controversial history that in the U.S. alone dates back to its founding in 1846. So this 1949 exhibition of Adrian's paintings was held at one of the most high-profile art galleries in the world at the time. And the fact that Adrian was taking a little time to travel and enjoy some of his other pursuits at this time was probably necessary given the fact that he had been working at a really unfathomable pace as a costume designer, interior designer, artist, textile designer, antique dealer, and ultimately fashion designer for a total of 20 plus years at this point. And um, this was probably ultimately what also contributed to the next piece of the story. In 1952, at the age of 49, Adrian suffered a major heart attack. And while he did survive, this essentially curtailed his work for Adrian Originals. And during his convalescence, the business was more or less quietly closed down. Adrian's success had always kind of been rooted in his own unique vision of Hollywood style. And unlike some fashion brands, which attempt to carry on under the direction of a new designer, this the decision was made to end the brand while it was still on a high note and still very much beloved. And I don't know, Cass, maybe this is a lesson that so many people who have 
endeavor to relaunch a historic brand can yes. learn from. <laughs> um, you know, most oftentimes it's just not as poignant or relevant without the original designer's vision. So there are exceptions, of course, but very rarely does it ever work, yes, in my yes. opinion. And we've talked about that many times on the show. <laughs> so life was slower out of necessity for Adrian after the heart attack. And under Janet's watchful care, he recovered to a degree where the two really were able to travel again. So they traveled abroad for pleasure. In 1954, for instance, they visited Brazil to take in the country's first international film festival. And it was there when they were exploring the region outside Sao Paulo, they fell in love with the landscape and ended up buying a 200 acre piece of land with coffee and banana farms where they lived for the next several years. And really this isn't off brand for them, right? Remember how even their Los Angeles home was also a sanctuary to monkeys, birds, goats, etc. So being surrounded by nature was always something foundational to Adrian and Janet's lifestyle. The next five years or so were spent living between Brazil mainly, but also um, short stints in L.A. and New York, where the Adrians kept a small pied-à-terre on 72nd Street. And Adrian's creative output during this time was largely focused on painting, although he did do a brief stint in 1958 designing the costumes for a Broadway reinterpretation of one of his past films. That film was called Grand Hotel. This might have proven a little bit too much for his fragile health, however, because in mid-September 1959, Adrian suffered a stroke at his home in Los Angeles. Janet was traveling abroad at the time and flew home as fast as she could, um, where she was by his side on September 13th, 1959. When he passed, he was only 56 years old. So young. I know. So needless to say, that day, one of the great American designers was lost. And as a teenager, Adrian's incredibly unique vision shaped the look of what we now consider to be Hollywood's golden age. His work for the silver screen then influenced high fashion around the world, and it can be argued that his work as a California-based designer in the 1940s can be considered an American foil to the work of, say, Elsa Schiaparelli. And actually, in the end, Cass, Adrian's life came full circle because, you know, as we've already pointed out, as a child, he dreamed of one day becoming a painter of animals. And at the end of his life, he was exactly that, you know, and it was what came in between that we all know and cherish the most about his work. His indelible mark on Hollywood and fashion history should probably be simply signed as Gowns by Adrian. And trust listeners, that does it for our two-part episode that was only a few years in the making. <laughs> like about six. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed as much as we did to learning a bit more about Hollywood history and its greater influence on fashion. And may you consider how the silver screen might just show up in your wardrobe next time you get dressed. Remember, we love hearing from you. So if you'd like to write to us, you can do so at hello at dresshistory.com. You can also DM us on Instagram at just underscore podcast, which is where we post images to accompany each week's episodes. Did you know that you can now listen to Dressed ad-free for just $3 a month? Check out the link on our show notes or our Instagram link tree to subscribe to our exclusive content, which is the ad-free version of the show. This will show up in your feed just like normal, but without ads. Thanks, as always, for tuning in and more Dressed coming your way soon. Dressed? The History of Fashion is a production of Dress Media.